Did they evaluate what happened to the spiders when they tried to drive a little spider car? <laughs> no, they Isn't didn't. Spider or car their depression. Car? Yes. What happened to their, their depressive symptoms, too? Yeah, that's a good point. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is confused by the latest health study as I am by air travel. What a mess. Did you guys fly over the holidays anywhere? Was it was it was it horrible? No, but we were lucky. We we were flying back from the Dominican Republic to Boston, and, yeah. and there were no flight delays because the snow was you know kind of all west of us. Yeah, but it was very 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 windy, and it was a kind of a terrifying white knuckle flight. Ooh, mm. you know, the plane is kind of like leaping around. You're like, wow, I hope those wings don't fall off. You know, that kind of bouncy Wing, wings falling off is is definitely bad. I don't know. Jess, we didn't go you? anywhere, but I it, the worst is when the luggage starts to come out from the oh, bins. That's, that's really scary, and you feel like the end is near. Right. Okay. Can I ask you all a question that I have had in a discussion with some friends that I shouldn't be admitting online, online, on air, that I don't understand, but <laughs> no. I, I, I want to understand this. Every time I'm in a plane. I look at the, you know, the, they now, like you have the the flight information that tells you you're flying this fast and this altitude. And then they tell you the temperature and the temperature, even if you're flying in the middle of the summer, because you're so high, it's like minus 43 degrees. Right. Why don't clouds freeze? I clouds should freeze. think that they, they are. I think that they are crystals at that height. But why isn't it a giant sheet of ice? Like I imagine the pilots are flying and they've got to go really fast when they get to the clouds to break through that sheet of ice. This is a really good and question. every time like, they're like, we just made it through. Well, it's like, it's like snow. It's like very, 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 very fine snow. You think? I think so. Okay. Because otherwise, you, you, according to your theory, we would hit those sheets of ice and it would be dire. I don't, you don't come out of the clouds and like the, the wings are coated with little crystals of ice. Do I'm you just think saying. it has to do with something having to do with gravity, like ice requires the particles to be really close together because it becomes like a solid mass. But if things are kind of, maybe they're not condensing. All, I don't know. All I can tell you is I've looked it up and I haven't been able to find a good explanation. So I feel like you've anybody, asked this question before on this podcast. I have. Don't I have because them. it's something that deeply don't, concerns right. me. Doesn't any of us have some younger children who are doing earth sciences who could mm. be tormented? I'm sure they question? do. Yeah, no, I have asked this before and I've not gotten an answer. That's why I bring it up again. Okay. So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome back, Jess. Thanks, Matt. And we have returning guest and host, Dr. Chris Gill. Returning champion. Returning champion. How are you doing, Chris? so nice to be be here. As you may all know, I've been on sabbatical this year in the, the Netherlands at the University of Utrecht Medical Center. And and I'm just curious, were you on sabbatical? Were you on sabbatical? <laughs> they can focus. I was just going to say, what were quotes. you doing there? I was having a wonderful time there is the answer. Yeah. I, I mean, what a great country, first of all, and and such an interesting uh, group of people I was working with. I had a lovely time mm. and um, I am, of course, glad to be back with my family. I miss them all terribly. But, but you know, if you go away for a year, you're going to like fall in love with the place you were at. And and it was very sad leaving. And I left a lot of friends behind and, you know, it was, it was hard to go. In yeah, I'm sure. I'm so. sure. Well, we're glad to have you back. And as a reminder, everyone head over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's B's hub for lifelong learning. And also head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. It, it helps us uh, win all of the podcasting awards that but we're going to win this year. 
But we no longer talk about our Twitter handles because we don't do Twitter at BU anymore. Well, that is not totally true. So explain, explain well, for the audience. You know, you know, the big picture, of course, Elon Musk going absolutely bonkers in, in the public space. And, uh, you know, Twitter sort of devolving into this horrible cesspool of media conspiracies and, and right-wing so. propaganda more, more so. than it ever was. And over the, over the break, our, our, our Dean, who has been a very, you know, avid Twitter unit user to put it, uh, uh, clearly and succinctly said enough is enough and we want no more of that. And so he stopped, uh, he said, he sent out a, an, an email to us all saying no more Twitter from me. And, um, you know, I was like, I immediately followed through because I haven't tweeted anything in over years, in many, many years. So it was an easy break for me to yeah. cancel my Twitter account. It was a very easy break for me because as you know, I could never even remember my exactly. Twitter so password. We're not, we are not prohibited from tweeting. No, no, no. The school, our school has made the decision there coming off of, of Twitter. I, I don't know if that's permanent or if that's just waiting to see what's going to happen, but yeah, I think it was a, it was a big move. So can I ask a question though? It seems like a lot of people are retweeting and that's considered not participating. I've noticed that a lot where you might not be tweeting original tweets, but there's a lot of people who are off Twitter who are now retweeting yeah, things that they put I, out last year or on, the, Twitter, on, on Twitter, on, on their same account, but there's instead of tweeting original tweets, they're just retweeting things. And that's viewed as being kind of lame. Better. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't. Well, look, there is no, again, there's you're, no, you're a, you're a Twitter guy. There's Are no you, requirement yeah. that yeah. You, anyone get off of Twitter. Right. That was just a decision that the school made for the school accounts. So people could because do it's they evil want. and destroying civilization. So if, so if people want to continue, they can, or if they feel like they're rather just going to step back and retweet, that's, I mean, that's a decision everyone has to make. So instead, we've all um, embraced the metaverse. Is that what's happening next? No, that is not what's happening. Okay. All Mas right. Mastodon, Truth Social, where are we going? I, I mean, we're, we're, what, what are we supposed to do? We're, gonna, we're just going to call each other on the phone. No, no, no. What? The social? What's right. a phone? I mean, I still have my LinkedIn account, but, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, LinkedIn, but it is the most boring social media I, I, I do notice on the planet. I do notice you keep your MySpace page <laughs> up to date as you That's dial right. in through your MindSpring right. account. Oh, my God. Anyway, on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on magic mushrooms and depression. Okay, that's not exactly what it is. It's but kind of, that's that's kind of that's what pretty it close. is. It's kind of accurate. Uh, and in the second part of the podcast, our deep dive, we're going to talk about the health literacy, what do you want to call it? Problems with health literacy? The health literacy gap? I, I can't know. even spell literacy. Okay, well, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. And then in our final segment, which is our amazing amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or we just found interesting. So let's jump in. Segment one. So the article... It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Single Dose Psilocybin for a Treatment-Resistant Episode of Major Depression. Did I pronounce that right? Because uh, I noticed I, you pronounced know, it differently. Psilocybin, psilocybin, I have no idea. I, I've always heard, I thought it was psilocybin. But anyway, Nick, what's the what's the ruling? Silos, psilocybin. A third, a third permutation event. I was just thinking it rhymes with Regis Philbin. So it's kind of like every time I look at that, I think of Regis Philbin. Psilocybin is what I was thinking. Oh. Okay. All is that right. when psychiatrists don't communicate <laughs> with each other very much? Right. Clearly, we, we don't have a lot of experience with this. It was by first author Jim Goodwin of Compass Pathfinder, which I think we could talk about what that is yes. uh, when we get to it. But a few, a few headlines. This was going to grab some— Guy Goodwin. Oh, sorry. You're right. 
So uh, some headlines. So Yahoo says magic mushroom compound shows promise as a depression treatment in key study. MSN says study finds what just one dose of a synthetic magic mushroom can do for hard to treat depression. Science Daily promising results from psilocybin trial for treatment resistant depression and Business Insider. The compound in magic mushrooms that makes you hallucinate eased people's depression in a trial. Here are four risks of taking psilocybin. So they added on their own take on this. Okay, so Chris, you're gonna you're gonna give us the the skinny on this study. Yeah, yeah, no, really fascinating article, and um, you know, a great a great article to to come back to the first podcast of since my reentry. I was also very glad to see that the New England Journal of Medicine still exists, uh, that they hadn't gone bankrupt <laughs> in my absence. I was wondering if they might. Wh- why? I'm just wondering, you know, because I I wasn't Could, reading them. Because you weren't here. I wasn't there to read them, so ah. I thought maybe the readership, you know, kind of no, collapsed. That's actually a fair. Point. Anyway, uh, let, let's let, let's sort of put this into a, a, a like a bigger context here, yep. which is okay. that, and we talked about this a lot over the history of this podcast. That you know, depression is a a, a huge problem enormous source of lost productivity and some loss of life and uh, of quality of life, you know, that affects the entire planet. And so major depression is is a majorly unmet public health need still. And despite the fact that we have many, uh, you know, medications to treat uh, depression, uh, the truth is, and we've talked about this in the podcast, these drugs tend not to work particularly well. And when they do work, they take a very long time to work. And so they're, you know, the, the treatments are, are far from excellent, shall we say. And more generally, I think depression is, is a very complicated problem to solve, partly because we don't really know what causes it. And the more we study it, the more it appears that it might be many different things, and which probably makes mechanistically it rather challenging to sort of hone in on, you know, what is causing depression in your patient. And the fact that we don't really have good animal models for how to study it like we do with other diseases, you know, and then there's, so there's no real experimental model that can be used like in a you know, Petri dish, you know, to sort of see, does, does this antibiotic kill these bacteria? You can't really do that with, with neurons in a human when we're talking about this complicated functional behavioral mechanism. And so it's a very, very, very difficult problem for, for the pharmaceutical industry to, to solve. And, you know, going back 20, 30 years, there has been this prevailing theory called the chemical imbalance hypothesis to sort of describe why people have depression. And I think we've now kind of moved away from that as being really overly simplistic, you know, and this was basically that, you know, the, the lack of serotonin in your neural synapses is what makes you depressed and which was the justification for selective serotonin on uptake inhibitors like Prozac or Paxil or many other drugs. And the problem is that, you know, even if it is true that these drugs change the serotonin concentrations, that doesn't seem to change your depression, at least not for six to eight weeks. And so the theory seems a little bit full of holes right away. And then there have been some really provocative studies where they use drugs to kind of chemically deplete people's serotonin artificially, and it did not induce depression. So there's another kind of blow to the theory, you know, and, and but to my mind, the thing that is most you know, hard to reconcile with this is the fact that antidepressants take months to work. And so if this is a chemical imbalance, why wouldn't it take hours to work? Right. And now we have sort of like stumbled into this new age where, where it actually appears that there are treatments that can work almost immediately on treating depression, uh, depressive symptoms. And one of these is electroconvulsive therapy, which has of course been around forever and has all sorts of like, you know, adverse connotations associated with it. And yet it remains that people who've been electroshocked tend to come out of that, that experience with an immediate resolution of their, of their, their depressive symptoms. And similarly, transcranial magnetic stimulation has had 
you know, profound and short-term results. And more recently, the use of psychedelic drugs, particularly psilocybin, and we talked about MDMA a couple uh, episodes ago, did, yep. and others have, have actually experimented with LSD. And in all of these cases, we've seen that that these have profound and short-term immediate effects on depressive symptoms. And so, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's all a long-winded way of saying that clearly we have not understood how depression works because now we're seeing it how it can be modified in ways that completely conflict with the old dogma that has guided psychotherapy de- you know, development for the last 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. So here we are. And so in this study, the research team was this this uh, organization you mentioned called Compass Pathfinder. And I'd never heard of them and was really curious. Me too. Yeah. Who are these guys, right? You know, usually when you read one of these these kinds of clinical trials in the New England Journal, it's like Pfizer. And so you know who it is. And it's not like a Compass Pathfinder. Who the heck is that? It turns out it is a it is a multinational advocacy slash foundation with deep pockets that was established to promote the use of psychedelics as a treatment for mental health disorders, and particularly psilocybin, psilocybin, or psilocybin, psilocybin, whatever we call it, the mushroom compound. The mushroom compound. And they were the ones who sponsored this this trial. And the lead author of this paper, this guy you mentioned, Guy Goodwin, is a British psychologist, not psychiatrist, but a very distinguished uh, academic who's been around for, for, you know, ever. Trained at Oxford, worked at the MRC in Edinburgh, you know, and, and he recently joined joined the Compass Pathfinder organization as their chief scientific officer and was the one who designed this trial. And so we should know that the Compass Pathfinder is not a pharmaceutical company. They are not marketing a product, but they are promoting the use of products. But in this case, they actually did supply the the drugs, the active compounds that they needed to run this clinical trial. So contrary to the, the media thing that you'd mentioned before, they did not actually take mushrooms. What they right. did was they took a, a pharmaceutical preparation of concentrated, purified, standardized psilocybin at different dosages. Yep. Now, what they did in this trial was to address the, the particularly severe problem of people with treatment-resistant or recurrent depression, major depression. Um, these are individuals who have had like multiple episodes of depression over their years or who have been treated, you know, for many long periods of time with antidepressants and just simply have not been able to get better. And so to do this study, they they enrolled a large group of, of individuals, 18 years and above, who had major treatment-resistant depression or recurrent depression, who were screened, you know, across 22 countries. There's really a huge amount of work that went into this. To enroll all these individuals with treatment-resistant depression, they, you know, categorized them as, as having depression using a screening tool and then later ranked their depression using this thing called the the madras scale mm-hmm. and i wrote down what the matters it means the, the m-a-d-r-s the montgomery asperg depression rating scale mm-hmm. and i assume asperg is the same guy for whom we named asperger syndrome who knows? Who knows? That would be Asperger, I guess. So maybe not. At any rate, and they they all had to have a certain score on this. And then they were randomized in three groups to either receive 25 milligrams of psilocybin concentrate, 10 milligrams of this, or one milligram of this. All of these individuals went through a lengthy uh, sort of roll-in process where they were evaluated by trained psychotherapists who could have been psychiatrists or psychologists or nurse practitioners. But they all had to have a standardized training, and they crucially were 
world blinded to which treatments their 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 clients were were receiving. They were all on antidepressants initially, but prior to the the actual experiment, which is a single dose of one of these three different doses, they were tapered off of their antidepressants over a several week period, and then were ranked on the Madras scale the day before they started, and then went in and had a therapeutic session and received one of these three doses blinded. This, in fact, was a, a, a so-called quadruple blind study, which was new to me, but means that the patient was blind, the therapist was blind, the researchers were blinded, and the people who evaluated the impact of the of the response to these three different doses were also blinded. So everybody was blinded. I thought it was quite a, a nice little rigorous response. Yep. And their primary endpoint end was, you know, did they have a significant decline in MADRAS score depressive symptoms? What they, they defined a response as being a 50% decline in whatever their baseline score had been before they took the drug at three weeks after receiving the drug. But they also followed them out for three months to see, you know, how sustained these effects were. And the effects were really pretty impressive, I thought. I, I don't know how you guys reacted to this, but I, I was I was I was like, wow, not not bad, in fact. So the I wrote this down in a little summary table. Of those who got 25 milligrams, 37% of them had a 50% drop in their symptoms. Of those who got the 10 milligrams, it was 19%, and the one milligram is it was 18%. So we're we're effectively looking at the difference between the 10 and the 25 milligrams as being effective, with the one milligram being a sort of a homeopathic dose that was basically the control. Of those who had a a, um, a complete remission, which means that their their score fell below 10 points on this zero to 60 point rating scale. Mm-hmm. They were, the, the, the responses were also 19% in the 25 milligram group, 9% in the 10 milligram and 5% in the one milligram. And then if they follow them to 12 weeks out, i.e. three months, the sustained responses were respectively 20%, 5%, and 10%, and the latter two did not differ statistically. There were, of course, more adverse events in the people who got the psilocybin than those who received the control. The results were somewhat predictable in terms of adverse events. A lot of them had headaches as they were coming off the psilocybin, which is not surprising. It's sort of basically the hangover effect of taking a a drug like psilocybin. Maybe more concerningly, there were some serious adverse events in terms of of suicidal ideation events that occurred in two patients who had received the 25 milligram dose and one who had a self-injury event. So the three out of these 70 nine or so who had received that dose had this effect. However, however, it should be noted that all three of these individuals previously had episodes of suicidal ideation and or self-harm and were all amongst the group who had not responded to the psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And so these were effectively treatment failures. And so, you know, I think that's something to pay attention to, but overall that to me, felt less concerning, and overall, I was rather impressed with this and thinking, like, huh, you know, this is this is this is a, a rather powerful proof of a maybe a new paradigm for a, you know treatment of, of of major psychiatric disorders. I had a lot of questions coming out of this, as I'm sure you all did, but that was sort of the you know that's the basic summary of what they did in this study. Great. Two things I just want to emphasize before I turn it over to you, Jess, which is number one: this was a what phase trial was this? This was a phase a two. two trial. Yeah. Can you explain that for what what, what a phase two trial? Is. Yeah, sure. So in clinical development, you, you know, you, you tend to go through these different sort of sizes and foci of, of research. So in phase one, you are generally, if you're talking about a drug, you're generally uh, merely interested in trying to understand the tolerability and, and like obvious side effect profile of the drug. And so what 
individuals would do it would be they would be enrolled. These are usually healthy volunteers who may or may not even have the condition that the drug is for. Sometimes they do. I think in cancer trials, they usually do. In other drugs, they often do not. And I don't know if there was a phase one trial of psilocybin. I, I think there probably was, but I didn't really go through the yep. literature behind in their bibliography. And so that would be like a dozen or, you know, or so participants, and they would generally be given escalating doses to see what happens as you increase the dose. And at what point they start to say, oh, I don't feel so good. And then you would sort of say, okay, that's the maximum tolerated dose. We're done. And at the same time, they would do all sorts of lab tests to make sure you're not having end organ toxicity and the like. But very rarely in phase one, are you actually trying to understand, does the drug treat anything useful? You're just trying to understand the pharmacokinetics, really. In phase two, you now sort of move towards much larger trials where your interest is shifting from safety and pharmacokinetics to more clinical efficacy. Does it doesn't in fact work, but usually you're doing this at a relatively small scale while still focusing on safety events. And, and dose. And dose, yes. Often often in phase two, you may continue to look at dose. Yeah. Frequently, in fact, that would be the case. And then when you, you know, coming out of phase two, appear to have shown that the drug is, is working or seems to be working and you have some general sense as to how, what the effect size might be and that you have a pretty good sense of what the safety profile appears to be, you then companies would make a decision, shall we you know, proceed and attempt to license and market this drug, in which case you would go to very large clinical trials, which typically cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, run for, you know, across thousands of patients, uh, sometimes, you know, in vaccine trials, 50,000 patients yep. would not yep. be unusual. And there, the focus is really now on confirming efficacy and safety at a, at a uh, with a relatively high degree of precision as a step to mark to licensing the drug. Yeah. And I wanted you to go through that just to emphasize, this is a phase two trial. So this was 80 roughly participants per arm. Pretty small. And I would argue largely focused on dose and because there was no placebo arm or right. placebo, not, you would never have a placebo arm, but right. let's say a comparison to continuing antidepressants and then preliminary efficacy, but not, this wouldn't be a confirmatory, you know, this wouldn't be the large studies. So that's just worth noting. The second thing I wanted to point out is this was not a study of taking mushrooms, right? This was a study right. of very controlled amount of psilocybin along with meeting with a therapist, tapering off of antidepressants in a controlled environment with special glasses and music and integration sessions after. So I just, it's worth right. emphasizing. This is not a study of just, should you go out and, you know, stop your antidepressants and take mushrooms instead, right? This is, this is a very different thing. So Jess, Given that, what was your what was your take on this study? This was an interesting one. I was glad that we did the, you know a deeper dive into this one in particular because I'm not sure this is one I would have picked up otherwise. I had a few thoughts on this study. I think, first of all, overall, this compass group, one of the things I thought that was really interesting up front is that all of the functions that I think we as professors typically fill or our colleagues typically fill were filled by outside consultants. So they had an outside medical writer, they had an outside statistician, they had outsider folks. And so that was an interesting thing to read through all those different functions. You're like, what I write, I, I do all those things. Or like, we do, you know, we have teams to do all those things. So that was something right off the bat that led me to the structure of this paper, which was somewhat different than other research that I've, you know, been more familiar with. I had a few comments. One thing that didn't jump out to me immediately was the meaning of the difference in the, is it the, the Madras score? And so it looks as if they found their result that they said was important. It's this difference between, it's statistically significant, but is it actually meaningful in the context of depression? Mm -hmm. I think they found a, a six, was it a six point? Drop. Drop. A, a, it was a delta of deltas, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and 
And I was left saying, okay, this is a statistically significant difference, but what does it mean for someone who is experiencing treatment-resistant depression? Is this a meaningful change in their, what does this mean for them? Does this mean you go off antidepressants? Does this mean that you're feeling great? Or is this like a mild change in some of the symptoms? So kind of the the meaning aspect was not as explored to me as someone who's not familiar with maybe the psychiatry literature or the psychology literature. And then I also doubted their blind, that the participant was truly blind to their dosage status. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, right. So this would be a study where you don't have it because you don't have a, again, what we're calling a placebo, but would it be, would be some other active treatment. They definitely knew they were hallucinating. You would definitely know you're hallucinating. So that, (laughs) but, but even in this case where there isn't one, you might even, you might even know the dose, but I'm not, you know, so the question is, does the dose really matter to the way you respond? And I would argue Maybe because if you know you're hallucinating, you might report, and, and given the outcome is something that is somewhat subjective, you might report your symptoms differently, knowing you just went on a big trip and yeah. you think this is going to help you. So I mean, it, it might is be possible, right? Or it's like possible. a you know an, an interest, or for people who've had many medication failures to treat this really intractable disease, there might be a strong kind of psychological motivation to like want this to work. I think that's right. And, and there, I mean, there was some evidence that this, this is not a sustained effect. That could be because the effect is, is real and isn't sustained because it's a short-term benefit. Or it could be that there's just differences in the way you report things when you've immediately come off of a, of a, of a, a really uh, hallucinogenic experience and might feel differently about the way you're reporting things than you might report it, you know, if, if, a week later even. So, you know, some evidence of that. Yeah. Well, I, I had a whole series of questions where I felt like, you know, what, what didn't we learn here? Mm-hmm. And what we, I think we did learn is that 25 milligrams is more effective than 10 or one. But what we didn't learn is 25 milligrams. Is that as effective as 50? Mm-hmm. Like why 25? Like, you know, is in fact 25 milligrams the optimal dose or could you go higher? Question number one. The question number two is they only gave a single dose of this and right. observed the impact over the next three months. And so, like, what if people were to take this once a week treatment? Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know what, what, if, what if this was part of, like, an integrated, you know, regular therapeutic session involving, you know, counseling with a therapist? And, then, and but, it, you know, this happened repeatedly. Would you get better results from, from that than a single dose? So I think, you know, there, there's a lot of potential for where would one go next on this. I think one of, no, I agree with that. And I think one of the interesting questions in reading this is kind of what is the counterfactual? You know, so they had all these people taper off, as you're saying, taper off their antidepressants. And then they they had the psilocybin and then they were, it looked like some of them in different trajectories went back on antidepressants during yep. the three-month study period. But then they statistically used an approach where they they kind of hypothesized what the reduction in the or in the increase in the MADRA score, the worsening of the depression, which I think it goes up. I think the score goes up as you are more yep. depressed. Yep. So they kind of hypothesized what the increase in the MADRA score would look like in someone who remained unmedicated for the three-month study period in an attempt to kind of model the counterfactual almost. And I wasn't sure that I totally got it. Like I think, it, you know, the idea that, yes, I could see if you were looking at a continued exposure— and then you could say, okay, we're looking at this sustained response 
to a continuous exposure over a given period of time. I was unclear with the kind of tapering off their pre-existing meds, giving them one dose of something, and then some of them going back on meds, others, others of them not going back on meds, and then they were kind of statistically modeling what they expected the depression to look like in an unmodic, in an unmed, you know, it was a little confusing yeah, to me. Yeah, I was a little unpersuaded by and, that, and, to be and, honest. Um, How much of that is due to the fact that there is no placebo arm mm-hmm. here, right, and so you're right. sort of modeling what you think is going to happen compared to what actually happened. I do want to, I want to amend something that I said. I, I said that we're not sustained benefits and, and it's, a, it's technically a true statement, but if you look at their figures, I mean, the, the, there were sustained benefits in the sense that people were better than they had been over time. It's just that they bounced back towards in the yeah, direction of where they had been, but, but they still stayed better than they were in right. the beginning, but that was true of every dose. So, so, so uh, hard to say what that means. The listeners can't see the, the very Thrilling figure two. Thrilling. I mean, I was just thrilled to read it. Titled Changes from Baseline in Madras Total Score. And basically, this is a a track of their Madras scores over time from the beginning of the trial through the end of the trial. And what you see is for the three different dose arms that the deepest drop in the Madras score, which goes from zero to around minus 16 at two days after the the treatment compared with the the 10 milligrams who go to a minus 12 and the one milligram who go to a minus nine, they all drop, but the 25 milligrams drops the deepest and the 10 milligram, the second deepest. And then they kind of drift back upwards. But by the end of, of 12 weeks, they're still not back to where they had been. No, none still, of the groups. None of them are right. They're still about six points. Well, in the case of the, yeah. the 25 milligrams that are, they're about 10, 11 points ish lower than they had been at the beginning. And for the two, the one milligram and the 10 milligram dose are about six or seven points lower than they had been from the beginning. And so at 12 weeks, the highest dose was about six points better off than the other two doses had been. And so there you wonder, like, you know, you see this big dip and then a gradual rise. What if they repeated it at one month? Would they see an even deeper dip? You know, would it continue to dip? Or, you know, do you see, you know, the effect all at a single exposure? And that's, that's it. Given my understanding of pharmacology, that seems unlikely. I would imagine it's much more likely that it would work better if you did it repeatedly. But, But, you know, know, we got to see those studies. That's, that's, that's next. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, Chris, but what do you make of the fact that, you know, so when 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 they talk about there's there was no benefit, the highest dose was was better than the lowest dose, the middle dose wasn't, statistically speaking. And that's I, you could obviously see that there. But the fact that all three groups showed benefit that was sustained, like if it was just benefit period, then I would say that could just all be placebo effect and it all rises back to where it was, but it doesn't. Every, every group, even the one, uh, the, the, the one milligram dose, they're, they're substantially, well, I don't know substantially, but how to uh, know what it means, but a six degree, six point drop sustained 12 weeks later seems, you know, and drop is good. Drop, means, drop, is, drop good. is good. Right? That seems, that seems meaningful. And you don't get, you don't get any kind of assessment of that because there's no, placebo to compare it to placebo. Right. And again, I don't emphasize, I mean, it, it wouldn't be a placebo. It, it would it, be standard of care. It of. is kind of like a placebo trial because the one milligram dose is presumably so low though. Who knows what one right. milligram is? I was going to say, I, we don't, I don't right. know anything. I, I don't know. What, what, I don't, we know I don't, from personal, you don't know from personal experience, we, we but it, yeah. on Nick, one of my friends from college, maybe. <laughs> no, apparently Nick doesn't know. But it, it, it did bring up the question of if the one, if the, if the, the, the lowest dose had the, the, the smallest adverse effects profile, maybe that could be something that could be dosed more frequently. You know, we were talking about, you know, with, you know, maybe more sustained, if modest benefits. 
Yeah, there's so many interesting, like, what would you do right. next with this? Right. Like, if you had the money, where would you go? I, if you were the isn't, compass. Isn't this always a problem? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like right. anything you can think of, like the COVID vaccines, like we don't we don't know that the the dose and the number of doses and the intervals between them is the ideal way you would have dosed the, but you've got to try something and you try a few things that seem reasonable and then you sort of make a decision. You could go back later. Uh, okay. In COVID, right. It was sort of a, an emergency. We had to make a decision done. Boom. But in, in lots of things like this, you know, antidepressants, things like this, you could, you could find something that you find effective and then you could spend a lot of time later figuring out what's the, you know, we could refine it and make it, better but it seems to me like these are these are not unreasonable well i can't say they're not unreasonable choices but i mean to to pick only three choices seems to be a reasonable place to start yeah you know if if we assume that the one milligram dose was truly too low to have any pharmacological effect that kind of gives us an interesting way of measuring the placebo effect here if that were true we just don't know that that that's true. true but let's let's assume that it is true because then it tells us that there's a placebo effect associated with all three of these doses, right? right? But mm-hmm. on top of that, you get the actual pharmacological effect, which right. is dose-dependent, mm-hmm. that the 10 and the 25 milligrams do better. But they all experience that massive immediate in, in impact, which may not be totally placebo. I think it's probably a lot of it is, is actual neuropharmacology going yep. on yep. and mm-hmm. the effect of psilocybin, mm-hmm. which probably makes you feel like, great and changes all these neural pathwords and does a bunch of stuff that we truly do not understand, but something happened there. And then you kind of drift back up to what we're going to say is the, is the true mean residual effect. And then, and then tracking, tracking that forward is really fascinating. Yep. Absolutely. Let me ask another question. This is a, this is a highly controlled substance in the U S and I'm going to assume in most of the countries where this was done, right? Yes, it is illegal, but not like in, in, the Netherlands, in the Netherlands, you are not allowed to sell mushrooms, yep. but you can sell you can. psilocybin extract that has been put into gummy bears. Only gummy bears? Well, edibles. <laughs> it has to be in a bear shape. So, yeah. If it's not in the bear gummy, shape, gummy doesn't count. Yeah, not I, I, which I, I don't know, does it mean that they're trying to standardize it? I, I don't know exactly what the, the legislative intent or the policy goals were there. Yep. True. Um, but if there's like a, pharma- a pharmacological unit of the gummy bear, right, like exactly. a vitamin unit uh, for children. I mean, if, you, if you're feeling right. very hungry and you eat, you know, combine them with marijuana and then right. eat 10 of those, I could think it could go very right. badly. And California is now um, flirting with the idea of... Well, didn't Colorado? Or was just it Colorado? Colorado. Colorado. They, Colorado. And they did. They, they did. They, well, so my understanding, I could be wrong about this, so apologies if I get it wrong. They decriminalized it. I don't think they legalized mm. it. Okay. I, I could be wrong about that, but I saw it meaning I think they're not going to prosecute people, but it isn't technically legal. I could be wrong about that, though. I may have misunderstood the, the law. Well, the, but, but, but hang on. But the reason I'm asking this is this was done in lots of different countries. I, I, I lost the list, but there was, right. it, was oh, a, I wrote them down. it was throughout oh, Europe, the U.S., countries? and Canada. It was 10 countries. I, I, would have thought, I would have thought, given it's a highly controlled substance, the regulatory burden, the hassle of— Actually, being able to, like, allowed to do the research would be high, and therefore you'd want to limit yeah. the number of countries. So that would suggest to me, you know, you only got a hundred and, or sorry, two two hundred twenty five odd patients here, or two hundred thirty. Yeah, were they were people hard to find, or do they want to, a lot of geographic diversity? I mean, I just. I, I was curious about that. It I, is uh, puzzling. Czechoslovakia, the United Kingdom, Denmark, 
my handwriting several, but I think I wrote Germany, uh, Ireland, Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, the U.S., and Canada, <laughs> and Atlantis. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the lost uh, continent. They found it. All right. Any any last comments anyone wants to make about this? I mean, I, I the other thing I would say is, I mean, it is worth noting the adverse events are high are and not surprising that you'd see a lot of adverse events because adverse events do include things like headaches and nausea, but some of them were severe. But there was one that I did want to ask about, and I wondered if you all had any insight. Did you read the list of, of adverse events? Uh, no, I missed that. Tell the me, what, what did you one, spot? I so did. It's table that, three. It's the one that table. kind of stood out to me was euphoric mood. That doesn't sound like an As being adverse. adverse, adverse that event. Adverse? That sounds like a I kind of like, like yeah. the like idea, but I wondered if that had some some technical meaning that was Feelings of extreme what, happiness? Yeah. Like, no, I guess in, <laughs> like annoyingly happy? You know. <laughs> annoying. Just being annoying. I don't know. I did That one just yeah. stood out to me as, as a surprise. It was interesting. I mean, it was interesting in looking at their serious adverse events. And then they were making the case that this was a population where their serious events happen frequently. Even, exactly. And they're happening evenly across their three exposure groups. And but, it, you know, so kind of it's interesting to think about the adverse effects needing to be contextualized in the circumstance of the outcome that you're looking at. Yep. All right. Any last any last thoughts? We, no, can we move just on? Uh, looking forward to seeing what's next. Yeah. With euphoric I, I mood? Do you have euphoric mood right I, now? <laughs> I would be happy to have a euphoric mood once yeah. or twice in my life. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. I, I wouldn't seem like an adverse like mood a, to me. I'm in a euphoria-free zone these days, so... Okay, let's let's move on to segment two. So we were going to talk about health literacy. There was a paper in the Lancet that sort of sparked this, called "Why Is Health Literacy Failing So Many?" They talked about a, you know, the sort of the fact that globally health literacy is just something that we don't have. It's pretty bad. Probably have never been very good at, but certainly, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, mis and disinformation has been rampant, and therefore the the you know information that people need to be able to make. Good decisions, you know, information about tobacco, alcohol, junk food, things like that has has been changing. And I admit, you know, I mean, I think. That Are you implying that that it is not possible to find high quality information of that sort on Twitter? I I'm not arguing that it's not possible. <laughs> I'm saying it's deluged with completely misleading nonsense, disinformation. So this is sort of talking about a WHO report on health literacy, you know, calling for you know more formal approaches to health literacy, recasting health literacy as a collective practice of a community, so something we should all be committed to and engaged in. And it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me this sort of like, I don't know, butts heads with our Western sensibilities of, you know, everyone should get to decide for themselves and, you know, stuff like that. Are, are we've demonstrated over the course of the pandemic, we're not very good at collective action and we believe in, seem to be believe in freedom over decisions that would probably be best for the common good. So I'm, I'm just curious where you think health literacy fits in, given that we know that health literacy would only be one of the pieces necessary for actual improvements in, in healthy behavior. Just knowing that certain things are good or bad for you is not enough for one for people to change their behavior. But even then people can't always, can't always change their behavior. You know, if you don't have you know money for healthy food choices or it's just unpalatable or unpleasant to you, you're not going to make those changes, even though you know that it's good for you or bad for you, depending on what it is. So thoughts on health literacy. Do we need, like, should schools be training kids in health literacy or did you get any training in health literacy when you were in school? We had a health class. We had a health class I don't in, in middle school. Much. I remember it was very, it was a lot of giggling because it, it was about their reproductive the system largely, right? Yep, pretty, right. Yep. 
I, I mean, I think what was, you know, the contribution of this article and reflecting on this WHO report was the idea that, you know, we think of health literacy traditionally as passing information on to people so they have information and can make decisions and tend to neglect the social or family constructs in which people actually, in reality, make health decisions. And so in neglecting those social factors, the literacy often goes nowhere and then we wonder why. And then we wonder why. And this happens not just in, you know, we think about health literacy, you know, it it happens in high-income countries and low-income countries, the idea that decisions are made in context. And, And I thought that was, you know, it was an interesting and, you know, an interesting thing to think about. And I think you're right that in the context of the pandemic, not like a shock, right, Mm, to to, to, to hear this information. I mean, I think when I think about health literacy, even just in my own family, for example, um, you know, my parents, I think about my parents who are older people who have access to a tremendous amount of information, but still feel very intimidated by the medical complex and we'll go to a doctor's, we'll know all kinds of stuff. Like my mother will have all kinds of things about her, you know, her health needs and her questions. And she'll, you know, she'll have eight minutes with a doctor and we'll feel very stressed. And Mm -hmm. then I will ask her, what did, you know, what did she say about all these things? And she'll say, "I, I didn't ask her. I got really anxious and I didn't ask her and she was really rushed. And and that's that. That's like kind of our structure that we often live in, where there's this hierarchy between patients and the medical system, where patients might know a lot of things or might have a lot of questions, but are not able to get the information they need. And so that was what I was reflecting on, just in my own personal, you know, experience in thinking about literacy in in our country or in our, you know, in our kind of in, in my environment right now, and you know, that it intersects, the information intersects with the construct in which someone needs to get access or needs to get information or needs to get health care. Yeah. And I, and I would add to that. I mean, I think we also live in an era where there's too much information. Mm-hmm. So you become, you know, paralyzed by the amount of information. So like, you know, we have to write a, a syllabus for our students, for our classes, and those syllabi have been getting longer and longer right. and longer as we've been asked to put in more and more information for students. And the end result is I think fewer students actually read the syllabus than they used to. Not that it was ever a common thing for students to read syllabus. I can say as an undergrad in the 90s, I did not always read the syllabus completely. But they're so long now that I would never think of reading the whole thing. And so then all of those pieces of information that are probably critical get lost too. It's the same thing with health literacy, I think. There is so much information out there. You can access anything you want, but how do you know – you know, which true. is the right, especially when you can get conflicting information on mm-hmm. everything. So we need reliable sources, but we also need concise, clear communication. Yeah. Well, I uh, am so jaded and cynical at this point yeah. and, and frustrated, and I don't know what the answer is. At this point? I sort of went, you know, when we started the podcast years ago, I was sort of hoping that this would this would reduce my cynicism, but it, it has actually done the opposite. <laughs> because I think a lot of the, the things I see, like in the New York Times, there's a mm-hmm. very popular health column by Tara Parker Pope. I don't know if you read this. I read it. I read it all the time. And and I and I, I confess that most of the time it kind of annoys me. Mm. Because you read it anyway. I read it anyway. And I think it's it's sort of part, you know, wearing a hair shirt. But I <laughs> I I you know they they all have the same arc. Like some question will be posed. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Like, does, does asparagus cause, you know, 
um, flatulence. I don't know. Or does, mm-hmm. does, 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 this, does this thing lead to this health outcome, good or bad? And, and it's usually something where, let's be honest, the medical literature is completely ambiguous and does not offer an answer. Yep. And so, you know, the, the arc of the, the story will usually go through, there's this study that says there is a risk and this other study that says there isn't a risk and causation is not correlation, so we don't know. And so then they go to the expert who's some, you know, doctor who studies this thing who also doesn't know because the papers are the same papers and they don't provide an answer. And so then they ask the doctor or expert's opinion. And the opinion is usually based on their personal bias. Yep. And then so I'm like, okay, so we've gone from question to no answer to here's my opinion. And is the opinion right? Who knows? Yep. Right. And that's the story. That's where and we then are. the next paper, the next article by Tara Parker Pope is exactly the same thing. Another unanswered right. question <laughs> leading to a completely unambiguous ending. Right. And yet usually counts because almost always it comes out with some advice. Mm-hmm. Like, even though we have no idea what we're talking about, we're going to advise you to do <laughs> right. X. I'm like, wait a minute. How can you simultaneously say you don't know? Uh, and then start to give advice about what to do about it. That's the part that actually gets me the, the you know, seeing a little bit red when I read these articles. Yeah, I think you read those differently, though, than the, the average person would read those in the sense that I don't think the average person reads that, gets to the section where the doctor gives the opinion and looks at that as, well, that's just one person's biased opinion. I think they take that as they're giving me the answer. The doctor the said. And so, but I would agree with you. I, and that's the problem I have with these as well is the, you, you. Like, okay, ask 10 doctors and see what 10 doctors exactly. say. And, and I'm so, guessing you get so, nine so different answers. The, the WHO, like, saying health literacy is a big problem yeah. in, the, in the, you know, the vaulted pages of The Lancet. I'm like, well, yeah. Right? right? Yep. You know, I yep. mean, the New York Times is, is, like, in some senses about as good as it's going to get. It's better than Us Magazine, I would think. And, and yet, they also have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Right? And so, like, then we're talking about health literacy is a real problem and we're thinking about misinformation, but are we not also the source of a lot of that misinformation because we just don't know and we don't confess it? I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think we are, we are, I mean, if we, if we knew all of these things with certainty, then you wouldn't see so many changes in the advice being given over time right? because we would know. We don't know. Sometimes we know, but not everything. There are lots of things where we don't know, and we, course, should, we should be transparent about there, that. You know, there's, there, there's a totally separate issue, which is that there, there are frequently things where we actually do, do know, know. <laughs> and then there's you know, misinformation and disinformation to discredit that right. and, and drive people away. So, I don't know. It's very complicated. It isn't getting any better. No, it isn't. The fact that there's more and more and more information is actually not helpful. Yeah. And I, and I think we should stop making our syllabuses longer. Oh, I, I, I'm in agreement with you on that one. Is it the plural syllabus or syllabi? Syllabi. Is it? Syllabi. Is it Greek or I think it's Latin? Syllabi. I can't remember. Um, I, I don't think know. it's syllabi. Syllabi. We're going yeah. syllabi. All right. We don't, need to, we don't need to belabor that one. I think we're all sort of in agreement. So let's move on to our amazing and amusing. Jess, what do you got for us? I have an interesting, I have an interesting one here. This is a report from the journal, an article that was published in the, in the journal Frontiers in Cell and Developmental Biology this past uh, fall. And the title of the article that I read about it is called Cooperative Sperm Outrun Loners in the Mating Race. Did what? you hear this one? I like that. So, Cooperative, cooperative so sperm what there is was a, thing. a group of researchers they are in North Carolina at North I think North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University what they were testing is the hypothesis that there's the idea in and this is this is based in largely in the research about infertility 
and rationales are understanding infertility, that the sperm that swims fastest is the one that gets there first. And what these investigators were, were, were researching and ultimately concluded in a way I'll describe in a minute was that sperm that stay clustered end up doing a better job moving in a straight line, which apparently seems to be the core necessity of being a successful sperm is not to like bounce off the walls, but to kind of, you know, get from point A to point B as effectively as you can. And being in a group allows them to maneuver through fluid, which is what they have to do, even though they go slower. So there are some sperm that are really moving fast and bouncing off the walls and not getting where they have to go. And then those that kind of, I don't know, with the mindset, the collective or collaborative mindset band together are more likely to have the quote unquote winner in that sort of context. And so it's an interesting. And so what this what this group of researchers did is they they developed the anatomy and, you know, to, to try to inject the sperm into a Wait, sorry, synthetic develop, vagina de- and cervix okay. to try to, to to test out their hypothesis that the cluster, the community, the cooperation actually achieved better results than the loners. And they seem to demonstrate this in ways I don't entirely understand. But, but, but at the end it, of the day, yeah. one, one has to One still has one to still break has to free win. from the pack, yeah, right? So. And so one still has to break free from the pack. And so there is, it almost seems like marathon runners, right? That there is yeah, a benefit in the cluster. And then at the end, yeah, then you, sprint. you have to sprint out. And the people who are, you know, the runners who just immediately from the beginning are just like, Phew! they can't make it all the way or they're going to get lost because they're not, you know, with the with the group. But it was an, it, it was an interesting, it was an interesting. interesting parallel to kind of community communities are being, you know, kind of community or solo operations of, of organisms. Slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady runs the ways, maybe even for sperm. Wow. <laughs> I, I have this, this vision of like the sperm peloton and destroying <laughs> these little giant... You know that's that they, what I was thinking. They, include, yeah, they, they, they obviously include some of these shoes. visuals, right? right, right. Wow, that is, that is, that is mm. actually, that is so cool. That is so cool. All right. I'm, mine's not as cool. No. Somebody, somebody had sent me, a friend of mine had sent me a uh, WhatsApp uh, link to some sciencey paper about spiders who'd been fed drugs and then couldn't make webs. Oh, so I no. clicked on this link thing. Oh, that's that's perfect for the podcast. I'll do that. But it, it, and it, it just took me to like a one paragraph thing with no like link to the actual paper. So then I went on, on the web and tried to find the actual source article. And the thing that it appeared to be referring to was a study actually done in 1995 by a, a group of space like travel researchers, but I couldn't find the original paper either. But what I did find was a much older article that was published in Scientific American back in 1954. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that the the field of spider web and psychedelic drugs goes way back. Okay, um, all right. And and I and it was actually a very interesting article that concerns an orb spider called Zilla Z I L L A X Notata is its scientific name. And it's an orb weaver spider that lives in your garden, probably. And he goes through this very long description of how orb weaver spiders make their, their, their webs in the first place, which is really fascinating. And I won't go into it, but it's, it's very sort of systematic. And, and, but the key step is that after they've created all these, these spokes in this very complicated, you know, uh, way to sort of lay out the architecture of their, their web, they then speed the, the trapping web, which is a single thread, 
that they, so, so you're the circular one. It's a circular so you're making one. a circular and it, and motion it does a with giant your spiral from the outside in and goes all the way in and then and and, and okay. converges. Okay, it's a single thread. And there's a, and the final catching web is a, is a single thread. And so to study this, they had to create a whole methodology for how do you do this. Like, first of all, how do you give drugs to a spider? <laughs> I you mean, know? right? It's tricky. So party. the way they did it is that they dissolved cannabis and mescaline and caffeine in sugar water and fed it to fruit flies. And then they fed the fruit fly to the spider. Interesting. Yeah. Right. And watched what would happen. And then they would destroy the reb so that the spider would have to come out like, you know, <laughs> drug intoxicated and rebuild their this web. This is just kind of mean. This, yeah, <laughs> this, mean. this, this sounds kind of mean. like they had been taking the substances when they designed the study. <laughs> I, I, you know, one, one does wonder, <laughs> one does fact, wonder what was going on with the researchers here. And then, of course, they also had to, to come up with a methodology for how to study the web design. And so they did it by using like some chemical apparatus that would create a vapor through a chemical reaction under the web and then which would deposit silver crystals all over the web so that the cameras could picture the web, the, the, the web strands easily against a white backdrop. And, and so then they did it. And of course the results were that when you give spiders drugs, (laughs) lo and behold, their webs are not very good, <laughs> but they're 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 we not. Really a lot but there. they're not good in 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 ways that are specific to the drug. So, like mescaline intoxicated spiders will like neglect whole sections of the orb and just not do them at all. And you know, spiders that have received benzedrine, which is a tranquilizer and an antihistamine, turns out that they their spiral becomes all wobbly. And so they lose that sort of beautiful symmetry in the as they're making the arc to sort of spiral into the center. Instead you get this sort of chaotic it's like they're basically all over the place. Like yeah. they're 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 drugged. They're intoxicated. And so the practical application of that is answers your question about whether you should Smoke pot and drive, or drink and drive, or take psilocybin or mescaline or benzedrine. I, I, and drive. To be clear, this and I was think a- <laughs> that if you're if you're trying to drive in a spiral, then you should avoid benzedrine. <laughs> if you're trying to get, if you're just home, going around a cul-de-sac, you just take mescaline. I, do, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the practical application of this is. To be clear, I just, I just, I it probably is bad in all sorts of ways. I'm sure it's all bad. I just want to clarify. Chris is referencing a conversation we had before the podcast started, in which I just asked the question: Which one of these substances? Major driving even worse. Right. I was not in any way suggesting which is the worstest way to drive. Anybody home. should be doing any of these things. So I just want to. I just want to get that out there into the record. Even spiders. Even, spiders. Even our spider spi- listeners they, should not be taking drugs. The question just is, did they, ask, right. did, they, did they evaluate what happened to the spiders when they tried to drive a little spider car? <laughs> no, they is didn't. Or their depression. Or yes. what happened that to their, their depressive symptoms? Yeah, too. Well, that's a good point. That was the fifties. They didn't know they had euphoria. Apparently. <laughs> okay. I, my, for my mine, I have a study that I'm sure you all heard about, but I could not resist us having a very brief conversation about it. So all I'm going to do is give you the title. I'm sure you will have heard of it anyway. And then I want you to give me your evaluation of the study based simply on the title, oh. which is COVID vaccine hesitancy and risk of a traffic crash. Good study. Good study. This is a real study, real study published in the American Journal of Medicine, which is not a, it's not the, it's it's not JAMA or anything, but it's not a, it's not a fly by night thing either. It's It's like their subtitle. It's not JAMA or anything. Right. What, what, what explains, and, and by the way, they found an association between vaccine hesitancy and car accidents. So what's the explanation? 
so we, first of all, we have to predict the direction of the effect of the association. No, no, you. I, it was it was harmful. The more oh, right, so the more vaccine hesitant, the more likely you were to have car accidents. Do you believe it's causal or? Is this, but what I'm getting at, Chris, is this the car roof rack I think scenario? Probably, yes. For anyone who doesn't remember the car roof rack, that's Chris's analogy for confounding people who own car roof racks. Don't get cancer and heart disease. <laughs> or get less rate. cancer and heart disease because they are healthy or on average. Healthier, right. This one made the round. So you, you had not heard of this? this study? Uh, I haven't heard of this either, but it reminds me of in, in teaching quantitative methods here at SPH, I always use this example of like Nicolas Cage movies. And yes. drowning deaths. Yep. And yep. those are statistically associated, like kind of that, you know, that it was Nicolas Cage in a movie that year is associated with increased, increased risk, of risk of drowning. Um, Which I think we can right. all say that is causal. Clearly, clearly, causal. clearly causal. It's always that illustrative example. So, so anyway, so the, I, I read, I, I heard about this and my immediate reaction was, oh, isn't that funny? But then I went and read it and it's actually a fascinating case study for a class because were they intending it to be a case study for the class or were they no, taking themselves they, more seriously? They, well, I think they were taking themselves seriously. I think that they, they, if you actually read it, they use some language that would suggest they're getting at cause and effect rarely, but they do. There is some language in there that might suggest it. They never say cause and effect, but then if you read the rest of it, they actually are nowhere near cause and effect. And in fact, they go through in the limitations, you know, we can't say this is causal. Okay, but we always say that in observational research, so how serious to take it? And so the question becomes, if you are doing a study like this with no, you're clear from the beginning, you can't get it cause and effect, why do it? And it gets at the distinction between causal, descriptive, and predictive research, right? So if you say, and, and if you read through this, their, their final conclusions are, you know, maybe, and, and I'm not saying I buy the conclusions, but I'm just saying that maybe doctors want to talk to their vaccine-hesitant patients about also being better drivers, right? So that would be a non-causal intrusion. They're basically saying it's just a marker for, you know, it's the car roof rack. It's just a marker for somebody who is more likely to take riskier, you know, take more risks, things like that. And therefore, you might also want to say if you have a person who's hesitant about vaccines, they may also be at increased risk for car accidents, and therefore you may want to counsel them about uh, driving, right? So there sort of is this aspect of it that you could actually say is, is right, right. reasonable. There's something there. On the other hand— But it's a little indirect. On the other hand, I don't think that's the way most people are, are going to take it. And so then the question becomes, is it enough to interpret your data correctly if you know everybody else is going to interpret it differently? Yeah. So I just, it, to me, it posed all these really interesting questions. So it sort of, it was amusing, but then the more I thought about it, it's, it's just a nice case study in trying to figure out what's our responsibility as researchers if we're doing a study in which we don't think it's causal, but we think it is a good indicator of something that could lead to good public health practice. So I, I just, I thought it was a fascinating one. Huh. That would be interesting, though, if the you know someone who's vaccine hesitant, like it goes along with kind of in a lot of ways distrust of the medical community, and then if your doctor so is telling be, you how yeah, to yeah. drive, it's yeah. probably the last thing that they would be like. Ah, now he's telling first he's telling me I got to get the shot, and now he's telling me I got to you know, fix my headlights and I drive more slowly. Stop taking psilocybin <laughs> before I drive. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, what would Tara Parker Pope say about uh, this? Good my question. question. Good uh, question. I don't know I, the answer to that. I don't know. It's it's so tricky, and it gets back to the health literacy thing we were talking about earlier. Yeah. 
because, you know, who wants to read an article where the, the authors are completely honest and they say, we have detected a, a likely spurious, biased, confounded, non-causal association. Nobody wants to read that. Between two factors that cannot be biologically and related. Nobody wants to publish that. But the p-value is rather small. Yeah. <laughs> like, and huh. what are we going to do with that? Yep. 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 All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If so you've got sad. any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can no longer tweet us. Uh, I assume the the at Pop Healthy X Twitter handle is no longer how, how active. Are, how I don't, are I, our plans for the potathon? The pot, but the what? The what now? The twelve, the twelve, the twelve, the, the twelve or twenty-four hour straight pod, <laughs> pod marathon. When's that happening, Podcast Nick? Have you marathon. scheduled that yet? <laughs> There's going to need to be some. Uh, I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Nick is like, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, anyway, so He's you, like, where are you, my magic mushrooms? The place you can find us is on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health. We want to thank Nick Guler for producing and supporting supporting the podcast and Mark Takachi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you'll download our next episode.